We come to the point in the book of Matthew here in chapter 5, verse 1, where we get the first of Jesus' teaching. Um, it's likely that, uh, that the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew is the same teaching that Luke refers to uh, as being on a plane. That's not contradictory. We can talk about it later, but, uh, but, but it's probably the same uh, teaching. It's likely that it was given over several days, and what we get here is the Cliff's Notes version of Jesus' teaching. The Sermon on the Mount runs all the way from chapter 5 through the end of chapter 7. And this is our first exposure to Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. John Stott, I think, maybe very rightly said that while this is the most well-known teaching of Jesus, it is probably the least understood and certainly least obeyed. This sermon from Jesus is decisively countercultural. And I could unpack for you the, the political climate that leads up to this, the cultural climate that leads up to this, the religious climate that leads up to this, but in the end I have decided not to because I think from what I, 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 as best I can understand, there is no culture, political system, or religious climate in the world that is not uh, counter to what Jesus is teaching here. It is countercultural in everywhere, in every place, and in every way, because it is countercultural to sinful humanity. And so, as we begin this section, which is going to take us some weeks, called the Beatitudes, the, this section that I have uh, first out, or, or read to you today, I want us to understand three features of this passage that are important for our understanding of the whole thing. First, in every section on the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus draws clear lines between those who are in his kingdom and those who are not. Jesus draws clear lines about who is part of this kingdom that he is bringing to fruition, not only in this life, but will come to completion in the next. But he is drawing lines between those who are inside and those who are out. And if I might challenge us for a minute, and I don't want to go at length here, it becomes the only acceptable discrimination line in God's kingdom. And I don't mean discrimination in the sense of treating people badly who are inside versus outside. But, but as we look at Ephesians chapter 2 and, and Colossians, we see that the gospel smashes any kind of racist reality in God's kingdom. I was once asked, what language do you think will speak in heaven? And I gave an answer, and, and now I'm not convinced I was right. Because even in heaven, in Revelation, as we look at the perspective of heaven, there is there people from every language and nation and tribe and tongue. Maybe we keep those identities in heaven. And we can just understand everybody. Maybe we speak every language. I don't know. But those, those, the, those identities, though they're part of who we are in this life, they, they are completely removed from us as opportunities for discrimination. 
There, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. Whether you're a man or a woman or rich or poor, or, or you have authority in this life, or you do not, whether you are slave or free, black or white, or anything else, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. But Jesus decisively draws a line that says there are some who are in the kingdom, and there are some who are not. This is found even in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul talks about um, judging those inside the church versus outside of the church. I'll let you examine that passage on your own and see what Paul has to say uh, about uh, the truth when we say, don't judge me. The second feature of uh, this, this whole thing is, again, chapters 5, 6, and 7, not just what we'll give our attention to today, is, is uh, just impossible to uphold. We are going to be confronted over and over and over again through chapters 5, 6, and 7 with an impossible standard to uphold. And there, I think there's only three responses to the reality because Jesus is laying on us what it means to be holy as God is holy. He is showing us what, what holiness, what righteousness, what right living and acting and behaving looks like in his kingdom. And it, it, it is the standard for that measure is God himself. And so we're confronted with this impossible standard, and there's only three possible options. The first is foolish optimism. We could be like the rich young ruler who confronted with the, the Ten Commandments, or at least some of the Ten Commandments, says, I've, I've upheld them all. We could be foolishly optimistic in saying, well, I can do this, and if I haven't in the past, I will in the future. I've got this. That would be foolish optimism. Second would be hopeless despair. Like, this standard is so high, why even try? Why try to obey? Why try to live like this kind of kingdom citizen? It's not worth it. I can't do it. I give up. And thirdly, would be the response of faith in God that believes that there really is such a thing as the new birth. That God really gives life to dead sinners. That Jesus really, by his spirit, not only declares us righteous according to the standard by faith in him, but over our lifetime on this earth continues to conform us in that righteousness that he has already declared us to have, and then in eternity will be completely and fully realized. Ephesians 2, verses 5 through 10 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In, in them. 
We can either say, oh, I can live up to that standard and fool ourselves. We can say, I can never live up to that standard and give up. Or we can trust in God, who, who when we by faith are united in Christ, declares us to be righteous, to meet this standard positionally, that is the moment we trust Christ, the moment we receive him, and we're going to talk more today about what it means to receive Christ, God instantly declares us righteous. This is positional sanctification. Your position in this kingdom in Christ is perfection, absolute righteousness. And then by his spirit and through his word, or maybe through his spirit and by his word, we, exercise, we, we undergo progressive sanctification where God brings us along ultimately in eternity to the position that he has declared us to have. And so first, the first feature is that there is a clear line drawn repeatedly by Jesus of who is in the kingdom and who is out of the kingdom. There is an impossible standard to uphold, and so we are driven to trust in Christ. And thirdly, and this is uh, more uh, relating to the passage that we're looking at today, this is a feature of this. It is what we call an inclusio. An inclusio is, is something that starts and ends the same way. It's like bookends on a passage. You may see this often in Psalms, where the first line and the last line of the psalm are the same. And we see that here in Matthew chapter 5, because the promise of blessedness for the poor in spirit in verse 3 is that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then again in verse 9, blessed, I mean verse 10, I'm sorry, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is those who are poor in spirit and who undergo persecution for being part of the kingdom who, who know that they have the kingdom. But why is this feature so important? It is because those two promises here, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, are the only two promises in this text that occur in the present tense. The rest of them are in the future tense. The, the blessed, the happy, the, theirs is the kingdom now. We can be part of Christ's kingdom now. We can, enjo- we can join the kingdom that he is bringing about, that he is here to announce and herald and preach and proclaim now. But the rest of the blessings, the comfort, the inheritance, the satisfaction in righteousness, mercy, Seeing God, being called sons of God, these are promises that don't yet have their complete fulfillment until eternity. And so the promise of this particular section, the promise of these beatitudes, which is a promise of happiness, and we'll talk about that again here momentarily, is a promise for this life. We can know that we are in this kingdom But the full benefit of the kingdom, the full inheritance that comes as being a son of God and a daughter of God, that term includes both, in this kingdom is not going to be fully realized until eternity. And so we have to be very careful as we define what it means to be blessed 
that, that we don't think that all of those blessings necessarily come in this life. There is no prosperity gospel here. There is, in fact, two promises in this life. Entrance into the kingdom and persecution. But through all of that, the overarching promise is blessedness. It is blessedness. Verses 1 and 2 show us the setting for which this sermon takes place. We finished last week seeing the incredible compassion of Jesus as he healed people and as he announced the kingdom to them and as he taught them what he was there to do. And we see that compassion continue, seeing the crowds, seeing them. Not just like, oh, look, there's a crowd, but seeing the condition of the people, the religious condition, the political condition, the cultural condition. He had compassion on them. And so he went up on the mountain. I think this is likely a flat-topped plain, like a mesa, which is why Luke records it being on a plain and Matthew records it being on a mountain. And when he sat down, now any first century reader would understand this to be the posture of a rabbi. If you had gone to the synagogue, it would be exactly the opposite of what we are doing here today. The teacher would be seated while everybody else was likely standing. The idea, by the way, that the church met primarily in homes, uh, as in people's houses, is, is pretty much not supported in any way by history. What we do see is that very, very early on, the church converted homes into places of worship, ripped out walls, put up altars, made baptistries in which they could submerge people, like almost immediately houses were turned into churches, as in church buildings. But if you look historically at these buildings, there was a little ledge around the outside where people who got tired could sit, while the teacher had one seat up front from which he taught. And so you would have a church that was standing in this room while the teacher sat and taught. And this is modeled after, I'm not advocating that this be the right way or the wrong way, but this is modeled after uh, the synagogue. This is the way synagogues operated. Somebody would take a scroll. They were given primarily to, uh, to worship in the, in the form of word, reading of the word, explanation of the word, probably some singing as well. Sacrifice and ceremony, that was for the temple. But these synagogues, small local places of worship, was where rabbis would go, they would read the scripture, they would teach, and they would do so from a seated position. And so as Jesus takes a seat People would know what's coming next. This is a, a posture of teaching. And Jesus had a ministry, as we saw last week, of teaching and preaching. And so he sat down, and when he did, the disciples came to him. Now, Matthew has not introduced us to the idea of the 12 yet. And so I don't think disciples here is just limited to the 12. I think it is a reference to this crowd. Jesus sees them, and out of compassion for them, he sits down to instruct them about his kingdom, and they all gather around him to hear what he has to say as the rabbi takes his position of authority seated before them. And then we get this Hebraism in chapter 2, that, or verse 2 rather, that, that means it's something significant. If you were to say in Hebrew that somebody opened their mouth and taught, you would be, you would be saying that they had something significant to say. 
In other words, what Matthew is telling us in verse 2 is that Jesus takes the position of a rabbi, the people gather around, and he says something very, very profound. And over the next uh, however long it takes us to work through verses five through seven, or, or chapters five through seven, we'll continue to see this profound teaching of Christ. What comes next, or rather first in this sermon, is what is called the Beatitudes, and they are as countercultural as it gets. The word beatitude comes from a Latin word referring to a state of happiness. A state of happiness. And the reason for that is because of the word that is used here by Jesus for blessed. It is not the word eulogetos that we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eulogetos, we get our word eulogy from it. It's just you meaning good and logos meaning word. It is a good word. And so in, in Ephesians 1.3, Paul is saying that God is the one who is spoken well of because he has blessed us in Christ. But the word here does not mean spoken well of. It is, it is a word that refers to happiness. In fact, in Acts 26.2, Paul uses it to call himself fortunate as he is on trial before King Agrippa. And in 1 Corinthians 7.40, he uses it to call someone happy. Before uh, the, I mean, yes, before the New Testament was written, in Greek literature, we see this word often being referred to uh, in, in relationship to the Greek gods to describe them as happy in themselves because they were not plagued with the sinful conditions of humanity. And so because the gods were removed from the earth and removed from the difficulties of life, they were blessed in themselves. They were happy in themselves. And so Jesus is telling us here how to be happy. One author back in like 1935 called this Jesus theory of happiness. And I don't think he got that idea wrong. But what we're going to see over the coming weeks in these Beatitudes is anything but what comes naturally to us. And so what I want us to take a look at today, we're only going to look at two, uh, verses three and four, and we will continue in coming weeks, is eight upside-down ways to seek happiness in God's kingdom. Eight upside-down ways to seek happiness in God's kingdom. And the first way is to declare spiritual bankruptcy. The first way is to declare spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus says, blessed are the poor and he defines the word as in spirit. There is more than one Greek word for poor. One would mean not having money. Uh, when the widow takes her two mites into the temple and gives them, Jesus uses that word for poor. The word here for poor is like the most destitute of beggars, having absolutely nothing. It is the stronger of the two words for poor. Jesus is saying, blessed are the Beggars in spirit. Blessed are those who are so poor in their own spirits, in their own understanding of who they are, that all they have to do is beg. They're not offering anyone anything. They're not even in the temple giving to spiritual mites. They have nothing. 
The kingdom belongs to those who come empty-handed. Immigration into Christ's kingdom is not like immigration into earthly kingdoms. We're not asking, Jesus is not asking, what do you have to offer to enter into his kingdom? We just come to the door and we say, I have nothing. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to give. I have nothing with which to benefit your kingdom. All I can do is receive. Will you let me in? This is illustrated so very well for us by a parable in Luke 18, 9 through 14, where we're told he also taught this parable, that is Jesus, to someone who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Notice who Jesus is giving this parable to. He is giving to this parable to someone in themselves who trusted that they were righteousness and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees thought that they had something to offer God. We tithe mint and dill. We, we pray. Our phylacteries are big and have lots of scripture in them. Our tassels are, are long. And, and, and the world and certainly Israel and God's kingdom are, are blessed to have us. But then there was the tax collector. Another word for a tax collector is publican. The system of tax collection was called the publicani, and you could purchase a a district to collect taxes in. And whatever you could get above the minimum required was yours. Matthew, the author of our gospel that we are examining, was a tax collector, Jewish by birth, sold out to Rome, extorting his own people. They were the worst of the worst of the worst. And that is the one who goes away from the temple justified? This can't be, Jesus. This guy not only had nothing to offer, he's a sellout. He's a traitor. He's given himself off to another kingdom. Whereas I'm here, I'm present, I worship, I go to temple, I give, I pray. Look how much I have to offer your kingdom, God. But the kingdom is not for those who believe they have something to offer. The kingdom does not belong to the rich or the powerful or the affluent or even the religious. It belongs to the destitute. It belongs to the sinner. This is completely countercultural. You want me 
to think lowly of myself particularly as regards sin, as a pathway to happiness? Yeah. Because all sadness, all sorrow, all pain, all broken relationships are all effects of sin. And it's not until we, we, we declare our spiritual bankruptcy It's not until we, as one author said, and I quote this all the time because I love it so much, it's not until we understand that we have nothing to offer in the equation of our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. It's not until then that our perspective begins to change. It's not until then that we begin to behold the glory of Christ who does have everything to offer And it's an equation that I I can't understand. I can acknowledge through great difficulty that I have nothing to offer in God's kingdom. But, But let's speed up the timeline. We come to Jesus and we say, I have nothing to offer. I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner. I bring nothing into your kingdom. He says, that's okay. Welcome in. I have everything anyways. And then he provides us with, Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He gives us grace. He gives us mercy. He empowers us by his spirit who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, the ability to move along in righteousness and then ultimately be welcomed into his kingdom. And what's the first thing he offers when we enter his kingdom? Reward. I I don't get it. At least not if I'm looking at it from the standpoint of what I have to offer. But when we realize that we have nothing, that everything God gives us is from the overflow of his grace and his goodness and his character and his nature, that he delights in his people, he delights to redeem us, he delights to give good gifts. He even delights to reward us even though he brings everything to the table and we bring nothing. Then all of a sudden our nothingness becomes incredibly inconsequential in light of his everythingness. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do we enter this kingdom? Simply by that posture. And this is where I think the idea of the word belief in English has not really done justice to the idea of what it means to pistuo in Greek, to to receive, to believe in Christ. Because believing in Christ is not merely an intellectual exercise where we say, I know what is true. It is a posture of receiving. It is the posture of the beggar. I have nothing except what you will offer me. And then what he offers us is himself. And with himself comes grace and mercy and hope and eternity and a community. Faith would be better understood as 
I don't want to remove the idea of believing from faith, but I want to add the idea of receiving to it. Listen to John 1.12. But to all who did receive him who believed in his name. There is an inherent receiving of the whole person of Christ into our lives, not merely intellectual assent. To those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's entirely counterintuitive, but happiness is not found in what you have, and it's certainly not found in anything you can pursue in this life. And it's not about what you can offer in his kingdom. It's about simply declaring spiritual bankruptcy. It's about realizing that you offer nothing so that you might see the glory of the one who offers everything. And the second way to seek happiness in Jesus' kingdom is to mourn over your sin. To mourn over your sin. It is not enough to just simply declare that we are spiritual bankrupt. There there must be a response of mourning that goes along with it. And this may be as counterintuitive as it gets. Again, we're going to talk about the Greek. I'm not going to get into the specifics. But there are nine words in Greek that relate to sadness. I think the reason for that is just because of uh, it, it acknowledges to us the commonness of struggle in this life. Nine words to speak of sadness, and this is the strongest. It's usually re- used to refer to, to mourning the loss of a loved one. And what Jesus is telling us here is that in his kingdom, it is the mourners who are happy. It's one thing to be spiritually poor. It's another to grieve and mourn over it. The necessity of of mourning can be seen throughout the book of Isaiah. In fact, uh, the book of Isaiah is kind of filled on repeat with this formula. There's the sin of the people, then there's the judgment of God, and then they mourn over the loss, or they mourn over their sin, and God brings about salvation to them, and then he comforts them. But the comfort doesn't come until there's brokenness over sin. And not only is that theme seen throughout the book of Isaiah, it's it's specifically linked to the Messiah, to Christ. Listen to Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand. Notice whose hand this is about to come from. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It is the same God who has wounded them over their sin, who they are now seeking comfort from as they mourn their sin. And then specifically in relation to the Messiah, Isaiah 61, 1-3 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's what Jesus is doing right here. To the poor, by the way, this Hebrew word for poor is not just monetarily poor. A Hebrew reader would have understood this as being spiritually poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Still vengeance. To comfort all who mourn. 
to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. John the Baptist and Jesus have already announced that the proper response to the announcement of the kingdom is repentance. You don't turn away from that which you love. You turn away from that which you are repulsed by. The kingdom is at hand. It's near. You can take hold of it. The only proper response of which is to be repulsed by our sin. What if, what if we don't? What, what, if, what if we don't see that our sin is that bad? How do I get to this place of of mourning. I think we have to understand what sin is ultimately against. See, if we just look at the effects of our sin on others around us, we might be tempted to be like the Pharisee who says, well, I'm not that bad. I haven't hurt anybody that much. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen a bunch of money from anybody. I don't know, I'm, not, I'm not just not that bad. And we go, how, how do I mourn these small sins that don't seem to have much effect on people? I think in that case, we have to shift our perspective. And we have to understand what makes our sin so great is not the effect that it has on other people, but the effect that it has on the glory of God. That every single sin we've ever committed is an assault on the glory of God. Adam and Eve just ate fruit and they had to die for it. It's not so simple. This creature that God had created from the dust dared to defy the holy God. The depth of our depravity isn't measured by by how great our sinfulness is. It's measured against the dignity of the one whom we have sinned against. And it's an infinite dignity. In Psalm 51, after David sleeps with and impregnates Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet comes to him and corrects him, and David pours out his heart, he has the audacity to make the statement, against you and you only have I sinned. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Certainly. Another man's wife is pregnant, and now he, the other man, is dead, all because of David. What in the world would drive him to say, against you and you only have I sinned? I don't think David there is saying that he doesn't understand he has sinned against other people. I think he understands where the genuine and incredible assault is. That his sin is an offense against the infinitely glorious dignity of God. And When we realize that that is the kind of sinners that we are, it should lead us to mourning. But notice what comes next here in verse 4, or yeah, 4. It says, they shall be comforted. Notice that it doesn't say they shall comfort themselves. 
they shall be comforted. Here's the picture for us. We come to the gate of God's kingdom. We say, I have nothing to offer. Spiritually, I'm a wretch. I've done nothing of significance in my life. I can certainly not, spiritually that is, I cannot repair the assault against your dignity that I have made, God. I have nothing, I bring nothing, but I desire to come into your kingdom. And I'm broken over the reality of my sin. I'm mourning. I'm deeply saddened by what I have done against you. And he says to us, not only come into my kingdom, he says, I will be your comforter. I will be the lifter of your head. I will be the one who gives you strength. I wonder how many of us are trying to justify ourselves. I'm not really that bad. How many of us are trying to comfort ourselves? How many of us think we have little to mourn? How many of us are trying to do good things to assuage our guilt? None of these things will ever bring happiness because deep down, you're just going to be confronted with the reality of who you are over and over and over again. When our kids were young, we had a treadmill. And uh, this treadmill was set up very, very poorly. It folded down, and the end of the belt was near a wall. And Riley, who was very little at the time, was sitting on the belt of the treadmill. And, and one of our kids had managed to turn the treadmill all the way on, then find the key and stick the key in it, and it came on, and Riley was pinned between the treadmill and the wall while the belt went around, and it just burned her arm. Just burned her arm up. And we were told by, uh, we were given bad advice from a medical professional who we knew, who told us how to treat it at home. And it was a painful experience for Riley. I mean, it wasn't harmful, it just wasn't helpful. And we're like, this is not working. And so we went to the doctor, and he gave us this prescription for silver sulfidine cream. And he said, just put some of the cream on there, cover it with some saran wrap. And we, we did. And what would happen when it came time to change the bandage is we would pull the, the um, saran wrap off of the burn, and she would just cry. She would cry and cry and cry. But the moment we started spreading the cream on her arm where this burn was, she would begin to laugh because it was just this comforting thing. We've all been burned by the sin that we hold near to us. And we try and come up with solutions on our own to cover the burns, and to see them healed. But all they bring about is additional pain. But if we will just seek higher help, if we will seek help from the great physician, if we will even expose the burns and wounds of our sin to him, he applies the balm of grace to our wounds. 
and turns our mourning into laughter. All because of what he has done. Lord, may we be willing to be exposed in our sinfulness before you. If it's terrifying and even painful to do so, may we come mourning before you, knowing we offer nothing, knowing that our attempted treatments to to apply balm to the wounds of our sinfulness never work. But may we come to you who offers us everything through the death and resurrection of Christ, having fully paid for all of our sin. And would you, through Christ, apply the balm of grace to our lives that we might be comforted, that we might have our declaration of bankruptcy turned into spiritual riches and our mourning turned into joy. And may we never settle for home remedies, May we come to you, the one who can ultimately and perfectly bring healing to our souls, and in you find joy as we live in this upside-down kingdom for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name.